0: Please pray with me. Father, I pray that this morning we would see our life in light of the life of your Son. That what we see and experience would be framed by what he has done for us. Amen. I'm not certain how y'all's Lent has started, but when I hear the gospel reading, 40 days of straight fasting in a desert, I think I'm coming off pretty easy, a little bit better than that one. It's a normal exercise in seminary to be asked to write a worship service. And when a professor gives that assignment, all the Anglicans respond by going, I'm not allowed to do that. They've all been written for me. Besides, why would I look at this book of all the services that one would ever need? But it's a good exercise, and it's one with biblical precedent. Deuteronomy 26 is actually Moses doing just that. We're going to spend our time there this morning, so flip to it in your order of service. But this is Moses' writing a worship service, writing a liturgy for his people before they enter the land. This is their first service in the new land, and it is effectively, we could sum it up by saying, it is a service of thanksgiving. What he says to them is, when you go into the land, take an offering, the first portion of your harvest, take it to the tabernacle, put it in a basket, Give it to the priest. The priest is going to put it in front of the altar. And then you declare to the priest that God has kept his promises in your life. Look at verse 3. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. God has kept his promises. This is the way the liturgy works. Bring your offering and declare before the priest, God kept his promises. But then after that, you have to give a testimony. You have to stand up and look at, this is verse 5 through 11. You have to recite a testimony of what God has done. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous, And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, Now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. This is the testimony that they were to give. It's a testimony of their history, how they got where they are. A history that was long and difficult. We wandered for a long time. We ended up in slavery and oppression and toil. But it's also a testimony of salvation. God saw us. God showed up there. He brought a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He made signs and wonders, and he delivered us. This is the worship service, offering and testimony. If we were to pull it into the present day, imagine this service like going on right now. It would be a service that we would do after going through a great difficult time. The loss of a job, a time of deep depression, a national crisis, And Moses' prescribed service would be, when that time is over, take the first chunk of your paycheck, come into the house of God, present it in front of the altar, say, God kept his promises to me, he delivered me, and then stand up in front of everybody and give the history, give the testimony. This is what happened to me and here's how he delivered me. Offer the testimony to encourage and to strengthen those with you. And then together, Worship the Lord in thanksgiving. That's what the service would look like if we pulled it into the modern day. It was Moses' prescribed service after the wandering, after the time of wilderness. A service of offering and a service of thanksgiving. This generation wasn't actually the first generation to go through one of these dark times of wandering. In fact, Moses didn't even make up this liturgy. He offers it to the people, but like any good Anglican, he borrowed it from those who came before. By the way, if you're confused, Moses actually was an Anglican. (laughs) He acted like one, though. He used a service written down by those who came before, or at least enacted by those who came before. You see, embedded in the very testimony is the fact that people have gone through these times of wandering and deliverance before Notice the way the testimony starts. A wandering Aramean was my father. In other words, someone's already done this path. It's referring back to Abraham, this time of long wandering in the darkness, living by faith. And guess what he does when he first gets to the promised land? Builds an altar, brings an offering, and offers testimony to the people there. Declares what God has done. Moses is following Abraham's pattern. But Abraham wasn't the first either. You can actually go farther back. Think about Noah, the dark time of wandering in the ark. When he gets out, what's the first thing that he does? Builds an altar, gives an offering, and proclaims what God has done. Even Abraham was borrowing an earlier liturgy. He too was a good Anglican. Joseph did it. Think about it. I mean, man, his wandering was nasty. Sold into slavery, in prison. It's a dark time of wandering. But when he comes out of it into a place of rest and security, you know what he does? He names his son Fruitful. It's like an offering, Ephraim, saying, God has brought me out into a place of rest. Even after Moses, we see this story play out again and again and again. Think about David sent into a time of wandering by Saul, who's jealous of his prowess, forced to live in the wilderness. And when he comes out of this time of wandering, you know what he does? He celebrates before the Lord, brings the ark into Jerusalem, offers an offering of money and wood and stone to build a temple. This is the pattern that they follow over and over. And this time of wandering followed by offering The testimony given in that moment shows up again and again and again. Thus we shouldn't be surprised when the Jews who are in exile come home and what's the first thing they do? Rebuild the temple so that they can offer their first fruits and thank God for delivering them. I actually think it's fascinating that Jesus borrows this narrative that occurs over and over when he tells the story of the prodigal son, a time of darkness and wandering. But when he's delivered, Jesus twists the story because it's the father who offers testimony over the rescued son. This is my son who is lost and is found. The father offering testimony over us. He takes Moses' liturgy and changes it. In the offering, the first fruits, turns into a feast for all the people. It's the most beautiful retelling of this story. I love it. If you're wondering, though, why I've gotten fixated on this particular story, one, it's because it's an electionary. But really, this story is deeper than that. This story is embedded in the psyche of all of humanity. Going through a time of wandering, wondering when I will be given my true home. This story is embedded in our psyche. It's like as big as the human race is big. From places as diverse as the Odyssey or the Aeneid to as mundane is the incredible journey. Over and over this, and if you don't know what the incredible journey is, it's three animals engaging on the same time of wandering in the search for their home. This story is embedded in the human psyche that we are lost in a time of wandering and we need a home in front of us. And all Moses is doing is writing the liturgy for how you worship when you come to that home. It's embedded in the human psyche, and I promise I'm not going to get lost on this point. It's embedded in the human psyche because this is the human story, driven from the garden in a time of wandering, longing for the true home. And the beauty of the story that we've been given, the story that is true, is that we know when that true home will come, and we know exactly where it will be. And so Moses is telling us, Here's what worship looks like there. Bring your offerings. Tell the story of salvation. Bring your testimony. A story as big as the human race. Not everybody actually goes into the time of wandering for the same reason. Sometimes people go into the time of wandering because of their own sin and their own guilt. Think of the exile. Driven into a time of wandering because of deep idolatry and sin. Some people go into a time of wandering because of the sin of others. Think of David driven into a time of wandering because of the sin of Saul. Or Noah driven into a time of wandering because of the sin of his generation. Sometimes people are brought into the time of wandering not even because of sin, but just because God has a call on their life. Think about Abraham. It wasn't sin that drove him into this deep time of wandering, waiting for this true home. It was just God's call that took him there. The generation that's in front of Moses is a generation that that's why they were in a time of wandering. God called them out of Egypt. But then that wandering was prolonged, not because of their sin, but because the sin of their parents. Moses is looking at the children of those who sinned, called into the wilderness wandering, wandering prolonged by the sin of their parents. People, use, people go into these times of wandering for different reasons. God uses the times of wanderings for different reasons. Sometimes he uses it for discipline. Think again, the exile, a cleansing time. There is great sin that existed in this people, and they need to be brought into the desert to be purged of the sin. Sometimes he calls them into the time of wandering, or he allows it to happen because they need to be prepared for the role that is ahead. Think of Moses, 40 years in Midian as a shepherd, being prepared to lead the people of God. Or think of David, driven into the wilderness by the sin of Saul, yet what God does with it there is actually teach him how to be king, because there in the wilderness all the dredges of society, the poor and the outcast, gather around him, and David learns to be king, by ministering to those who are hurting the most. It's beautiful the way that God uses that time of wandering. Sometimes he uses the time of wandering simply to humble and test his people. This is actually what's going on in Deuteronomy. Listen to Deuteronomy 8. Earlier in this sermon that Moses has delivered to his people, he says, "...and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness." He led you that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. In other words, God led them into the wilderness in this moment and used the time of wandering to humble them, to test their faith, to see if they would come to the place where they trusted God's word over their source of food, over their bread. This humbling and testing, the way that God oftentimes uses the wandering in the wilderness, this humbling and testing is basically God using these times of wandering to create a people of deep faith and deep obedience. To create people who hold nothing back from God. Who follow them no matter what. Follow him no matter what. It's using these moments to free these people from their idols. The things that we would depend on instead of God. Think about Abraham. Again, he wasn't called to wander because of his sin. He was called to wander simply because God had a promise before him. But it was during that wandering that his faith was established and strengthened. It was the process of wandering itself that strengthened his faith and brought him to the place where he literally held nothing back from God. This is how God oftentimes uses these moments in people, to create people who hold nothing back from him, who trust his word in his promise, over everything else, using the wandering to test them and to refine the heart so that the only thing left is faith and obedience. A person who says, I will keep following no matter what, refining and pulling away all of the idols, all the things we're tempted to trust other than God himself. Becoming people of faith, becoming people who hold nothing back from God Becoming people who trust God no matter what. It actually sounds wonderful. You may say, I want to be a person like that. I want to be a person who holds nothing back from God, who trusts him no matter what. But we, we need to notice that the process, the wandering itself, is oftentimes pretty difficult. It's pretty long. It's pretty dark. Imagine God saying to Abraham, you'll be known as the father of the faith. And Abraham says, great the father of the faith. And God says, but you're going to have to leave your hope. Okay, where do I go? I'll show you when you get there. God, that's not a lot to go on. Abraham, walk and trust me. The process can be difficult and long. C.S. Lewis describes the difficulty of that growing in faith and obedience in a really beautiful passage in the Screwtape Letters. And I've turned the words around so that it's not in the negative, because remember, that book is written from the perspective of the demon. But he's describing the difficulty of growing in faith and obedience. And he describes how God oftentimes, early on in our faith, will make himself known to us in very tangible and experiential ways. But then what he says, that after God's communicated himself in those tangible and experiential ways, that he withdraws from our conscience experience all those supports and incentives. He leaves us to stand on our own two legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such troth periods, much more than during the peak periods, that we are growing into the sort of creature God wants us to be. Satan's cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. It's a beautiful, beautiful phrasing of this. And he's capturing exactly what is this essence of this refining wandering. The fact that in the midst of the desert, it can feel like God is a million miles away. This is what we mean when we say grow in faith, in obedience. Somerset Ward, one of the great Anglican Anglican spiritual directors of the 20th century, said it perhaps more succinctly. He said, there is no way of learning faith save by using faith. You catch that? There is no way of learning faith save by using faith. In other words, it's the process of using your faith in the time of darkness that actually creates and strengthens and grows that very same faith. That's how faith is grown. That's why that process can be so difficult. We wish that it could be easier, right? Lord, could I become a person of faith without going through the wandering? We wish that it could be easier. Can I become a person of great faith without having had my faith tested? Because that's what all this is saying. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 8 to the people. He led you in the wilderness to test you, to see if you could trust that man lives not by bread, but on the word of God alone. He brought you out there to see, would you trust that the God who created you by a word can sustain you by a word? And remember the people's response, what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? It's trying and it's testing and we wish that there were an easier way. Why does it have to be this way? This is a place where I also need to avoid getting lost or I might have y'all here for three hours. There's so many answers to this question. Why does it need to be this way? I'm just going to offer one and it's the one that is in Deuteronomy. Therefore, I think it's probably the best one to offer today. What we see in that passage in Deuteronomy 8 is very simply that there are a multitude of things that we depend upon for our satisfaction. There are a multitude of things that we depend upon for our blessing. There are a multitude of things that we depend upon for our security. These things that we depend on other than God. And the point of all these things is that they are deeply rooted in our hearts and we don't easily relinquish them. Moses' point in Deuteronomy 8 was that you needed to be taken out into the desert to learn that those things that you use for security and blessing cannot replace God. You needed to be taken out into the desert to lose those things, to learn that you can't depend on those things for security and blessing. This is what the wandering is. It's being forced to live without these things that we depended on. This is why he says, God says, I took you out here. I took away your food even, so that you would trust in me and me alone. And the people said, that's too difficult. I want the food of Egypt back. I want to go back. The only way, in other words, to learn faith is to be deprived of the things that we are using in God's place. Here's the deal. We all have those things, things that we use in the place of the Lord. We actually, during this season, during Lent, attempt to sort of relinquish those things fast, give away money, repent of the sins that we depend upon. But we all know that it's actually pretty easy to give away the things that we're not depending on in place of God and very difficult to give away the ones that we actually are depending on in place of God. In fact, it's difficult sometimes to even identify those things. The point, sometimes we need to be taken through a period of wandering so that God, who actually knows our hearts, can remove the things that we actually ought to be fasting from, the things that we actually are depending on instead of him. Most of those things are actually really mundane. There aren't these sort of high, ethereal, like big spiritual things Think about what he took away from the Israelites. I'm going to take your home. I'm going to take your food. And I'm going to take your job. That's what he took. Your home. Your place of security. Your food. Your place of pleasure. Your job. Your place of identity. They were the most mundane, ordinary things, but they were the ordinary things that they said, this is where my identity and security and blessing comes from. There are plenty of other things that could be in this category. But the point is that what we depend on other than God is usually the very very ordinary stuff of life. And sometimes we need to lose those things. Some of you may be in the place right now where things that you previously depended on have been taken away. Some of you may actually be in a moment right now where something that you depended upon, a previous stage of life, a set of friendships, a job that you used to have, the way that somebody treated you. You may be in a place where something has been taken away and you're sitting there mystified and hurt by it. Don't make the mistake that I feel like I make every single time this happens. I feel like every single time this happens, I regularly miss the fact that God is offering me a chance to step forward in faith. Instead, I just get bitter and frustrated over what I've lost. Where is the food of Egypt now? Don't make my mistake. If this is where you are, where you look and you say, these things that were so dear to me have been taken away. If this is where you are, the message of Deuteronomy 8 is learn to live on the word of God alone. Learn to live on the word of God alone. Learn to live on his promises, bank on his promises, recite them to yourself. Become a person who grows in faith and is willing to follow even in the dark or the desert. In Moses' liturgy, when he brings you to the other side, celebrate with your other brothers and sisters. Bring offerings and thanksgiving and tell them the story their faith will be encouraged to hear a person say, can I tell you about the darkness that I went through when God stripped away all those things that I depended on? And can I show you what he did on the other side? You might feel like you're wandering right now, wondering when God will actually show up. But my point is that you may actually be in the place where God is actually trying to teach you to trust him, where God is actually trying to teach you to live on his word, his promises, the hope that he has for you. My guess is that for many of you, like for me, there's something in this that cuts close to home, where you go, I've been shaking my fist at God for that thing that I've lost, missing the fact that he was offering me a chance to grow in my faith, to step closer and closer and closer. This may be something that hits you personally. The passage actually the first thing that I read when I read this passage, the passage also fits the life of this church right now. Such beautiful timing. I love the lectionary. Just the right passages at just the right time. We're about to do a little wandering. We're about to look for a new church home. It might be a quick little journey. Hop across the desert. It might be a long slog. It might be like the Israelites, multiple stops along the way. In other words, it could be a moment where God deeply tests our faith, or it could just be a little shock that reminds us to trust God. I don't know how long and how deep it will be. Whether you're thinking right now of the church or something in your own personal life, our undergirding assumptions, our basic response to this situation needs to be we aren't the first. Remember the testimony? A wandering Aramean was my father. Every brother and sister in the faith who's come before us with any depth has gone through the same thing. A wandering Aramean was my father. Remember the testimony. This is our basic response. Gut level assumptions about this. Remember the testimony of Deuteronomy 8. We are called here to learn that we live on the word of God, not what we eat. We could add, we're called to learn that we live on the word of God, not what we eat or what we meet, where we meet. We could put these things together. The point is that what constitutes us as a people is what God says, not these things that we depend upon for security. This moment, whether in your own life or in the life of the church, is one of those moments where God is actually saying, you want this faith to grow? then exercise it. Trust me in this darkness. Trust me when these things are pulled away. And Moses' liturgy, when God pulls you out, when he brings you to the good land, when he plants you in a beautiful place, offer thanksgiving, bring offerings, tell the story to others, worship in that way. There's deep security as we hit these seasons. There's deep security when we hit these moments of fragility, when it feels like everything that we depended on is stripped away. If you're in one of those moments, this moment, the security that I would offer you is very simply that we have one who wandered in the darkness on our behalf. As I read this story, the thing that just sort of leapt out, the beauty and the power, Who is the one who truly lost home and went through the deepest darkness to recover home on the other side? It is our Lord Jesus himself. Who is the one who wandered in the desert? Even the story we read this morning, wandering literally in the desert face to face with the devil. He did it on your behalf. He did it for you. There is security in knowing that whatever the one is that faces you right now, you are not alone, and you are not alone because the Lord wandered for you to the depths of hell itself and rose victorious on the other side, bringing offerings into the very throne room of God, an offering of himself, not of thanksgiving, but to cleanse us from our sin, and then offerings of all those captives he freed on the way in victory celebration. Our king wandered for us. There is no depth that we could go through that he has not been through before. If you're face to face with one of those moments, face it in security. In other words, face it in strength because the Lord is with you. Amen.